What the filing cabinet did that nothing else had ever done before is allow loose paper to stand on its edge. I think I've caught you up. Exactly. Uh, 1890. Thank you, Heather. Invented 1890. So I'm largely talking about the early 20th century for most of this talk. Um, so what are the advantages of storing loose paper on its edge? I'll quickly note two. It's easier to retrieve a piece of paper from a filing cabinet on its edge than from a pile of papers, right? And it's also easier to find something specific. So loose paper can be grouped together with other relevant pieces of paper, regardless of when it was created. And in fact, it was the latter that first got me um, thinking about the filing cabinet. Um, in research for my passport book, I spent weeks at National Archives in College Park, Maryland, looking for references to passports and thousands of reels of unindexed microfilm records of 19th century US diplomatic correspondence. I wish you were me. And so one day, though, I arrived at records for 1906. That year is forever etched in my mind because that year the State Department started using a numerical filing system. And so suddenly every diplomatic office had the same number for passport correspondence subdivided by specific issues and cases and applications. So rather than scrolling through formally bound pages organized in chronological order, I could go straight to where the relevant information had been gathered in one place. So subject trumped chronology, right? And this completely changed my research and it made it possible um, to find documents I wanted with um, limited effort. Okay, I'm just trying to get the screen going. Um, um, so my epiphany at National Archives was one about classification, but later it became about storage when I discovered that the early 20th century celebrants of decimal classification systems, the people who were excited as I was, channeled their excitement into filing cabinets, right? The key was the move away from storing paper um, in bound books. So to hopefully state the obvious, um, the filing cabinet stored pieces of paper, but paper was where knowledge was recorded, stored, and circulated. So to store paper was to store information. To make loose paper accessible was to make information accessible. Um, therefore, to use the filing cabinet was to interact with information. Um, and that is why I argue the filing cabinet is an important object to study. The filing cabinet allows us to understand a fundamental change in the way in which information was gathered and stored and reused. A change that in its staying power continues to shape interactions with digital information. So not only through files on our computers or tabs on our browsers, but I would argue with digi digital assistants like Siri and Alexa, where women continue to assist people to find information. So I acknowledge the current contemporary stuff, but this talk is gonna be pretty much a deep dive into that moment of emergence. Um, and I do that because um, I think it's important to acknowledge the power relations that are integral to um, information technologies like the file or the tab. So rather than an infrastructural tubes and wires critique, this history makes information and data material by showing that the concepts through which we are still asked to imagine our encounters with information and data, files, folders, tabs, et cetera, originated in highly gendered understandings of labor and information. And so in that sense, it kind of re-embodies information by showing that the properties of the information technologies associated with filing are the product of 
of historically specific power dynamics. So therefore, like again, general point, I guess, and not so much a therefore, uh, yes, technologies have affordances. They're designed to do some things more easily um, than others. Um, and in that sense, I examine the filing cabinet as an object that is activated in particular ways. It does some things and, it, and not others. Um, in that sense, I don't look at the filing cabinet as being inert or frozen, right? I think about it as an object in operation, as something that is activated, right? It's understood to have emerged as a solution to a set of problems, problems about the storage of paper. However, as a response to these problems, it generated a set of processes that affected thought and action. So therefore, the other kind of sort of idea underpinning this research is the perhaps hopefully not too radical claim that storage is not neutral, right? That storage has a politics. And of course, this raises a number of questions, including, you know, how is storage constructed as a problem? What values go into deciding what to store, where to store it, how to store it? So what were the problems the filing cabinet solved, right? Well, as I suggested, storing loose paper on its edge allowed it to be more easily retrieved, both the specific content on a sheet of paper and also the sheet of paper itself. So that is the, the filing cabinet emerged out of a rethinking of storage. So in the 1890s in the office, the storage of paper becomes a problem of retrieval. So storage always involves an awareness of future use, right? But it does not always prioritize the moment in the future when the stored object will be accessed, what we now call retrieval. So as a practice of piling or stockpiling, storage prioritizes the allocation of space to store something, right? Storage takes up space. In contrast, retrieval is conceived as a temporal practice, right? The focus is on a process, on facilitating the act of finding something. Retrieval takes up time, right? So why then is storage approached as a problem of retrieval at the turn of the 20th century? Why that change? Well, this period saw ideas of efficiency capture the US business imagination. As capitalism takes on its corporate form and scale in this period, saving time emerges as one of the defining problems um, of modern Western society. Now, in the book, this book, the prop, this book, right? In this book, I offer a detailed discussion of the stakes involved in the storage logic of the filing cabinet. I focus on three concepts, verticality, integrity, and cabinet logic as critical to understanding its development. However, all these um, concepts or storage logics logics are underwritten by a concern to save time and increase productivity. So in this talk, in the spirit of efficiency, I'm simply going to use efficiency um, to explain why I believe that the filing cabinet is not a neutral storage technology, arguing that efficiency is a highly gendered discourse, right, um, at any period, but particularly this period. So efficiency creates the problems that the filing cabinet solves. I say problems because the filing cabinet responds not only to the problem of timely retrieval, but also the need for information in the first place. So efficiency, productivity require planning. Planning requires information. It requires knowing what to produce and when to produce it. Therefore, information takes a on a role in business that it had previously not had. And I should also note this is the period um, when management emerges as a profession as well. So in the um, remainder of this talk, I want to focus on two ways in which via efficiency 
um, the filing cabinet shaped a particular kind of interaction with information. So first I'm going to talk about how the filing cabinet makes pervasive a concept of information as a discrete unit, as something that exists in the world. And then secondly, um, I'm going to focus, the second part of the talk will focus on how the filing cabinet brings to the foreground a new mode of work used to handle this information. Information labour emerges as something distinct from knowledge. Okay. So the emergence of the filing cabinet provides an important site to examine a critical moment in the ascendancy of information as a defining aspect of contemporary society, right? To have an information society, you need to have a particular understanding of information. And information becomes a name for an instrumental use of knowledge. Now, as the late Jeffrey Numberg showed, the 19th century saw a move from information as an individual mental process to be informed, to be educated, to a conception of information um, that attaches it to something that could be possessed and obtained and received and distributed and circulated. So information increasingly becomes thought of as a discrete unit. Now, to be real clear, um, I'm not arguing that the filing cabinet invented this conception of information, but I am arguing that it offered a way to make sense of this change, right? It became a way to grasp information both physically on paper and metaphorically. So this quote up here um, comes from a 1912 issue of a long lost magazine called Machinery. And I like this quote because it gives us a sense of this new conception of information. So useful information here we can see was carefully and systematically collected. And then it was classified and digested. Digested not mean, eat, not mean eaten, but put into digests, broken up into pieces into book, within books. That is information emerged from knowledge through an increased specificity, right? And, and further classification, objective procedure made information or allowed people to argue that this information was superior, as the quote says, to individual judgment. So this process of division took knowledge and made it accurate information, easily understandable by anyone. And as the last sentence says, instantly available whenever a problem is presented to management efficiency, timeliness. Um, inside a filing cabinet, a file drawer showcased this understanding of information in part because it used tabbed guide cards and folders. I inadvertently bought a prop, manila tab, manila folder, to make the specificity, um, to make the specificity and classification visible. In its organizational structure, the file drawer allowed information to be retrieved in its specificity. A piece of paper or a manila folder of loose papers could be extracted. So you had all the information on a particular customer or product or passport application. Information was at your fingertips. And this is the period when that phrase um, takes off. So the idea that, that you could hold information, not only that you could see it, but touch it as something discreet, goes a long way to explaining how the filing cabinet um, and tabbed folder became a conceptual gateway to understand modern information. Because of course, information is something discrete, can be represented in many different ways within a statistical table, right? The cells on a table, um, or in this period that I'm talking about, the organization of a railway timetable. But these made the concept of information harder to grasp. I'll continue to pun on grasp through the whole talk. 
Um, so um, as these quotes up here um, on the slide suggest, this tactile articulation of paper and information frequently appeared in prescriptive literature. Um, the attraction of the filing cabinet to the business information of the early 20th century was how quickly it allowed hands to get that information. It defined classification, therefore, as a temporal problem as much as a spatial problem, right? Classification is about efficiency in this sense. We'll get, get to that briefly, but Q&A, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Lastly, for four years, it comes up a few times. Yeah, we're, let's, let's, yeah, a lot. Basically, as I should say, every sentence in this talk is open for Q&A, right? This is a summary of my book. Every source is open. Yes, but, yes, but thank you for drawing attention to it. Slide. Um, so ads claimed um, a filing cabinet allowed users to find papers at a moment's notice or almost instantaneously. In the spirit of the time, these assertions were quickly quantified. According to one very happy customer, almost instantaneously translated to 20 seconds to find one letter and 90 seconds to file, file five folders. That's pretty fast. And we'll talk about the hands that are doing that um, in a moment. In focusing on retrieval, a filing cabinet also challenged ideas of what defines storage. Rather than hiding information in drawers or in pigeonholes or lying flat in piles, this, that, that form of storage was now understood to be dead storage, right? So rather than that, information needed to be alive. It needed to be standing at attention. There is no subtlety in my archive. Um, storage um, was not dormant or dead when you used a filing cabinet. Um, in the 1930s, celebrating the use of a decimal filing system, an advertising agency president noted, quote, that information does not rot in our files. It is continuously shuttling back and forth between file and everyday business use. Claiming that, quote, within a few minutes, a clerk could retrieve sales presentations from 30 different companies in 30 different fields, he concluded, thus, our file lives. Now, stepping away from the specifics of the file drawer, I want to note that the filing cabinet and the interior of the file drawer are examples of a key technique of efficiency, what I call granular certainty. And this is the drive to break more and more of everyday life um, and its routines into discrete, observable, and manageable parts, right? Granular signifies the belief that breaking things down um, produces a higher degree of detail or specificity. Certainty indicates the conviction that greater specificity will reduce individual discretion and increase the likelihood that a task will be completed efficiently. Now, obviously, breaking something down into small parts allowed it to be controlled by enabling it to be more easily apprehended, understood, and connected to something else. Um, this is the logic that is central to Taylorism and the reorganization of factory labor occurring um, according to standardized tasks occurring at the same time. Now, the analytic value for me of granular certainty is that it emphasizes the overlap between efficiency's embrace of standardization and the particular and a conception of information as something discrete. The vertical filing cabinet and the tabbed manila folder emerge from this overlap between efficiency and this new idea of information. In the file drawer, granular certainty created a particular cabinet logic. And here we just have an ad for um, um, 150 and 200 division um, tabbed folders for um, 
alphabetical order of names. So breaking the alphabet down, not into 26 letters, but into 150 or 250 um, categories. So this cabinet logic used paper, manila folders, tabs, to create partitions within a cabinet drawer to decrease discretion and increase certainty. In promotional literature, um, this cabinet logic became, quote, the intellect of the filing cabinet to help market the filing cabinet as um, a machine. Now, um, as these quotes here show, ads emphasize that the filing cabinet or anthropomorphize the filing cabinet, right? Um, as Lisa Gittleman points out, um, the word automatic came into general use in the 19th century, derived from auto automaton, sorry, um, that, so that is that the increasing use of automatic carried with it, quote, lingering connotations of resolving the organic and the mechanical of human forms and functions built into machinery and of mechanical responses by human beings. So as a machine, because that's how the filing cabinet was often marketed, it took on the work of remembering. Right. Um, in her 1923 book, Filing Department Operation and Control, um, Ethel Schof Schofield, Schofield argued that with the increased scale and expectation of 20th century corporate capitalism, an individual businessman could no longer depend on his memory to recall all aspects of his business with the detail that 20th century capitalism demanded. Schofield noted that replacing this memory, quote, presupposes a thoroughgoing automatic system for the association of ideas, close quote. Posing the question, can such a thing be secured by mechanical means? She immediately answers, experience tells us yes. Therefore, Schofield calls vertical files an automatic memory. Now, automatic in this case really does mean predetermined. And taking on the role of thinking of remembering from people, um, remembering where information was located, um, office equipment identified as a machine was understood to guarantee order. This was petitions and tabs generating granular certainty, which in the name of efficiency and saving time, directed the user to where the needed information could be found. We're now transitioning to the second part of the talk, information labor. Now that user was understood as someone who operated a machine, hence the importance of the hands of the operator, the hands that had to pick up and hold paper and information. James McCord, who founded the New York School of Filing, this might be another thing, Heather, yes, they taught filing in high schools, um, and they were private schools, in 1914 used his textbook to stress the need for a clerk to possess physical dexterity. I'm not going to read the quote in full, but the point here is that although the filing cabinet lacked the mechanical parts that underscored um, scientific management celebration of dexterity in the factory, McCord's description illustrates the importance of hands and fingers to filing in the office, right? Filing demanded more than the mere handling of paper. It involves selecting, grasping, removing, lifting, placing, fingering, drawing, putting, right? So fingers displace objects and fingers grasp and displace objects. They isolate them and they gather them together. They manipulate and shape objects. So guided by the intellect of the filing cabinet, the hands of a file clerk manipulated information, not in the sense of falsifying information, but in the sense of handling it, of moving information within the office. This is a period when the concept of workflow emerges. Um, 
whole lot in the book about that. The granular certainty that uh, articulated information as a discrete object via loose paper also underwrote the labor of the file clerk whose work enabled its circulation. And in fact, the file clerk emerges or as a distinct occupational category because the work of the 19th century clerk, a man, was broken down into a number of distinct specialized tasks, including typing, bookkeeping, and filing to be done by women. So filing is an example, filing was an example of clerical work that emphasized the necessity of particular bodies interacting with a machine. The action of these bodies was also separated into discrete parts to better manage their labor following the logic of granular certainty. So in the words of one filing manual author, mind, eye, and hand can soon be trained so that they automatically act together to do the teamwork that is invaluable. Now the brain is part of this team, but only because as labor historian Harry Braverman argues, to the extent that clerical work, quote, is still performed in the brain, the brain is used as the equivalent of the hand of the factory worker in an assembly line. This idea of filing is information labor. Um, I use information labor to label office work as it was redefined as machine work. Now, information labor is not a distinct occupational category. Rather, I use the term to refer to a type of instrumental encounter between workers and information that became increasingly common throughout the 20th century and is still with us in the 21st century. In its ideal form, this is an encounter that requires neither thought nor interpretation and does not directly produce knowledge a product of discourses of system and efficiency, it fits into a conception of work that depends on rational and calculated procedures. So information work is not knowledge work and nor is information work men's work. This is very clear in the advertisements that introduced the filing cabinet and the work associated with it. Gender underwrote the distinction between information labor and knowledge work in the office. Identifying it as women's work reinforced its secondary status. Men could do these tasks, but they were things a man, AKA a knowledge worker, could do on the side without any thought. A catalog description for a so-called efficiency desk, which included file drawers, made this point with the lack of subtlety that is critical to the genre of the trade catalog. Quote, each compartment should represent a fixed place so that the hand of the executive will reach automatically for desired records without interrupting the continuity of the brain action. In this scenario, a man filed, but only while he thought about something else. He reached over to the drawer as a matter of habit, while the file drawer as a machine worked to locate information for him. A file drawer remembered. It allowed the male executive to keep thinking about matters deemed productive. As an executive in the gendered office hierarchy, a man was employed to think. His work was the priority of the office. Promotions for the filing cabinet further emphasized it was designed as an object to be used by women. Some catalogs claimed that women's bodies affected the dimensions of the filing cabinet. So the cabinet should only be four drawers high because quote, that is about as high as an ordinary girl can work to advantage. Similarly, a drawer was only 27 inches long because it could be pulled quote, by the file clerk as an arm operation. 
any longer it would become a walking operation, meaning the clerk would have to move to the side of the drawer to reach into the back. So therefore, um, in case you have been wondering all your life, what is the vanishing point of utility? The vanishing point of utility is very close to 27 inches. It's not 27 inches, but it's very, very close. Um, in another type of ad, manufacturers sometimes used a close-up of the interior of a file drawer to illustrate how a cabinet worked. So they could claim their folders, guides, and tabs, and follower blocks as unique. And in these ads, a woman's body disappeared, though her arms and hands might remain. And in this example, she is literally erased um, from the image. Now, why the close-up of the drawer was arguably necessary to show the guides and tabs, the fact it removed the body from the image meant that the pair of disembodied but gendered arms and hands not only pointed out the cabinet logic of the interior of the drawer, but also shows us, show us the ideal relationship between labor and technology necessary for the cabinet to be labeled automatic. Hands or arms separated from their bodies and minds suggested that the user the users of this office equipment did not have to think um, as they worked. Therefore, disembodied hands um, in filing advertisements represented work that was neither independent nor constructive. As Janet Zandi argues, quote, truncated hands represent metonymically an ignored whole, a lesser human element and species. Since the 17th century, this truncation has been applied to workers where they're identified as hired hands or simply hands. In filing and information labor, it was only natural in this period that these hands would belong to women. Advocates invoked as common sense an association between a woman's hands and dexterity to naturalize the construction of the new machine-based information work. Well, sorry, to naturalize the new machine-based information work as feminine occupations. By 1943, Evelyn Steele, editorial director of vocational guidance research, could confidently note, quote, it is generally agreed that women do well at painstaking, tedious work requiring patience and dexterity of the hands. The actual fact that women's fingers are more slender than men's makes a difference, close quote. Now, this idea was usually linked to, um, to work and leisure activities. The former invoked women's work in light manufacturing or textiles. For the latter, it was often noted that socially acceptable leisure practices provided ways for women to enhance their apparent natural dexterity and thus gain informal training and filing. As one manager commented, I often ask a girl if she plays the piano or if she knits, crochets, sews, or does another type of work that would enable her to acquire speed with her fingers. Shockingly, despite this natural connection between feminine hands and hands and files, sometimes the automatic memory of the filing cabinet failed. When it did, those hands were explicitly reconnected to a body. This filing was the fault of the file clerk, never the filing cabinet or the filing system. Oops. Um, as a mode of misuse and error, misfiling is what Victoria Oldwell calls a bodily malfunction. That is, the cloak of invisibility covering the body drops away the moment the body makes a mistake. So misfiling makes visible a very particular body, that of a young woman. As one company magazine asked, can misfile misfile? <laughs> the answer was, 
Yes. And it was due to her youth and her miss unmarried status. This was the very same youth, however, that was, of course, critical to her efficiency, or at least the cost efficiency of her labor. The work of file clerks was efficient in part because dominant beliefs about gender and sexuality lowered its cost. File clerks were poorly paid, not only because they were women and young, but also because they were unmarried. What Ma Hicks calls, quote, an assumed heteronormativity created a family wage and an informal marriage bar. That is, a young woman was never assumed to be a household's main breadwinner, so it didn't matter what you paid her. And once married, um, she would, of course, stop working at the office, either by choice or force, and go and stay home and look after her husband and the kids that would inevitably follow. So this unmarried status and the assumption that all women wanted to ma marry men was viewed as the immediate cause of filing. So from this perspective, unmarried women who worked close to men could be distracted while they thought about potential husbands um, around them. Surveys of women office workers did support the belief that marriage was a priority for young women who worked in offices, but it is not clear if it dictated their actions in the office. Um, assuming that marriage dominated thoughts of female clerks, work advice literature focused on managing female desire. Unwanted sexual advances and harassment from men were not behaviors to be managed or even publicly discussed. It was the responsibility of women to curb their emotions and quote, the feminine instinct to attract, to awaken a response, close quote, in a space where as the male manager of an employment service, possibly this guy in the photo here, put it, women were hired to quote, add to the general attractiveness of the office. An experienced um, female office manager instructed um, file clerks, quote, to um, leave fine clothes, the theater, pleasant parties, and Tom, Dick, and Eric. Harry at home, which also raises the idea that our clerks had quite a home life, I think, with Tom, Dick and Harry with them. Um, this was necessary because if a woman brought such thoughts into the office, it would break down the teamwork of senses and the mind. Quote, as she says here, important tasks cannot be accomplished with your hands while unimportant details fill your head. You cannot file amusement under work. They are at the extremes of the alphabet. She must have been very proud of that line. Um, thus, Miss File would misfile if she failed to compartmentalize, if she failed to keep her personal concerns and work duties in their proper place and order. That is, the explanation for her behavior invoked the very act of misfiling, right, of putting something um, in the wrong place. Perhaps it's not surprising that the filing cabinet was offered as a tool to teach young women to better order their lives by controlling their thoughts and desires, especially when these women were often the daughters of immigrants working in a space coded as middle class. An office manager argued that office technologies would teach these young women, quote, the three necessities of efficiency, concentration, accuracy, and good nature. She explained concentration as the need to control your thoughts as you must your pencil with a firm grip despite outside disturbance and inward annoyance. I think we've all felt that. Um, however, it was not only office technologies like the pencil and the filing cabinet that could teach women the necessity of efficiency. 
When a woman left the office, as apparently she would, to become a wife and mother, she used new domestic storage technologies that reinforced the value of productivity and efficiency. In the 1920s, storage in the home changed dramatically. Prior to this, storage spaces were not factored into the design of houses. So for example, closets and cabinets were not designed to store specific objects. This changed as the cabinet logic of designated places and partitions in office furniture became critical to how spaces were managed and objects stored in the home. This was seen, for example, in response to the early 20th century closet problem. Um, previously, afterthoughts or a little more than wall cavities, um, closets became purpose-built. They were organized, they, the enclosed spaces of closets were organized into smaller spaces. Just think IKEA catalog, right? Um, however, the main action in terms of home storage was in the kitchen. As kitchen design became a thing that filled the pages of House and Garden, House Beautiful, Ladies Home Journal, etc. Um, it began with standalone cabinets that turned kitchen storage into the strategic use of shelves, drawers, and partitions. In this way, the modern kitchen was linked to the office through a faith in a cabinet logic that prioritized meticulously organized interior storage to make things accessible. This was captured in the Hoosier cabinet, um, six foot high and four feet wide, um, its large shelves and drawers house such items as pans, kettles, and nests of mixing bowls, all in specially designed spaces. Promotional materials claimed that a Hoosier cabinet had 400 articles all within um, an arm's reach. Manufacturers and writers were keen to acknowledge the debt to the office. Vertical or upright partitions called files were added to shelves, we still see them sometimes today, that allows plates and platters to be stored on its edge. Quote, you can pick out with one hand just the dish that you want. Um, ads to be expected were much more succinct. The business of getting meals, the kitchen needs to be businesslike. And in this ad, we can see a little cutout of an office um, with a filing cabinet and with the vertical, verticality of the skyscraper as well. Now, as implied, when announcing the move from the office to the home, what I see important in these changes um, in home storage is that they illustrate that storage technologies require a certain form of labor performed by a particular worker. Storage is not neutral. An encounter with these technologies encouraged women to understand their self-worth through productivity. As the interaction between hand and object became the representation of efficient labor in the home, these economic values became a way to express identity. Addressed in these way, um, these women participated in a reconfiguration of attitudes towards self and work performance that helped make productivity common sense an adjustment that Mel Gregg argues gives productivity its 20th century um, history. Um, I wanna go further and link these changes to information, right? To say, although changes in domestic storage did not address information as a formal category, they do offer a suggestive example of how people experience modern information via the materiality of storage technologies, right? So granular certainty, cabinet logic moved to the house and brought with it a particular form of work centered on an idea of the particular and the specific. By way of conclusion, I wanna restate some key arguments by briefly discussing two of my favorite research discoveries that I couldn't fit in the, in the paper earlier. Now, the first 
um, is a trade catalogue from a Michigan-based company called Shaw Walker. In the early 20th century, they advertised their filing equipment under the slogan, built like a skyscraper. I can explain later what that means if you are really curious. Um, the cam a campaign, the reason I'm interested in this is this campaign places filing at the center of the gender division of the modern office, albeit from the perspective of the male. The built like a skyscraper campaign constructed of a, a series of physical encounters um, between male and female bodies and the company's filing cabinets to illustrate different aspects of the essentials of office equipment, strength, rigidity, easy operation, noiselessness, economy of floor space, maximum capacity and good design because we always think of good design when we look at a filing cabinet. So it showed men jumping into open drawers, lifting their bodies off the ground and hanging from open drawers, what the catalog calls handstands. Um, the latter image we used to signify the rigidity of the drawers as opposed to the strength of the drawers illustrated by men jumping into them. I'm gonna come back to this, but I just wanna say other companies did something similar using photographs of men sitting or standing um, in the open drawers of their filing cabinets. The point of this, um, was purportedly to show that a filing cabinet was built to hold the weight of paper because four drawers, each drawer weighing 75 pounds, is, an, a, really, is, an, a, lot, is a lot of weight. And you want to know that not only will the filing cabinet fall apart, but that the drawer can open smoothly, hence the little girl um, down the bottom there. But I would suggest that the filing, the built like a skyscraper campaign is not subtle at all in the ways that it represented these issues, right? It doesn't take much, I think, for anyone armed with some basic theories of gender representation to argue that this brief exercise routine and the advertisements seem to reflect the anxiety that men felt about the arrival of women clerical workers um, in offices, the phallic skyscraper, the unsheathed tip of the Woolworth building in the background, the rigid and erect male athletic body, all sort, I would suggest, humbly to make explicit the masculinity of the men who worked um, in the office. Um, such masculinity was not to be questioned. Um, the, and this is reinforced by the image the campaign uses to demonstrate the easy operation of the filing cabinet, where not only do they cho choose a woman or a female body to open the file drawer, they choose a child, they choose a child pulling on a silk thread. Um, the idea being here that I think, you know, if a child can do it, anyone could operate a filing cabinet. If anyone can file, if filing requires only the strength and the intellect of a girl, then only women should file because men can do other work that women can't do. The second find I want to finish with is a nationally syndicated cartoon from 1921, reprinted um, in Heather's favorite magazine, Filing, um, that ran for four years as part of a failed attempt to get filing recognized as a profession. Um, the cartoon, in a very odd way, can be used to illustrate the effects of capitalism on information, or rather the changing shape of capitalism on information. So in it, we see here a male file clerk um, quits after his boss refuses to increase his pay. Before he leaves in an act of defiance, he removes the papers from the filing cabinet and throws them around the office. In the final two panels, the boss changes his mind and the clerk gets the news of his pay increase while surrounded by loose papers and files. This image stood out to me when I found it because when the boss makes the decision to increase the file clerk's pay, he calls him Mr. Google. 
right? Um, and then the coincidence of the name Google being associated with access to information is pretty uncanny, which, and it became basically ridiculous when it's digit, the image itself, as we can see, is digitized by Google, right? Um, so yes, this borders on the ridiculous, this coincidence, but I also find it a useful way to illustrate that categories of information overload and information management take vastly different forms at different historical moments. At one time, as I've argued, the filing cabinet was the symbol of orderly information management. By the end of the 20th century, Google search has taken that mantle. In the comic strip, Mr. Google sabotages the filing system, right, by spilling papers out of their proper locations. Ironically, this results in exactly the kind of giant pile of papers, i.e. the web made up of pages, that Google, the corporation, I know it's technically alphabet, but that ruins my point here. Google, the corporation, provides access to through page rank. The chaos Mr. Google creates is exactly the chaos that Google later on promises to manage. That is, although different, both the filing cabinet and the search engine became organizing principles for the capitalist management of information. And I will stop there. Fantastic. I don't want to start. I'm excited about filing magazine. I'll just start with one question, uh, which is uh, filing cabinet makes this emergence in the 1890s mm -hmm. um, at the same time that adding machines, telephones, elevators, typewriters, like all the machinery of modern offices are happening at once. And you think, is there a connection across these machines that you think is important? Or is the filing cabinet sort of oh. uber machine or machine system I mean, I think there are connections and there are things that make the filing cabinet um, unique. So I think the connection between all of those things is that the operation of those machines is what I call information labor, right? So this is this moment in which there, this, this, this very sort of instrumental encounter or interaction with information comes to define work. And you don't have to necessarily like understand the, the, the context or, or I mean or the content of what you're doing. You're, you're just helping information circular. So I think that that connects them. Um, and so in that sense, I'm implicitly arguing that they're all they're all connect, they're all in some way making manifest a particular idea of information distinct from knowledge. What makes the filing cabinet a particularly useful example of that moment is the way in which it allows us to really understand the sense of information, right, in such a significant way that the filing cabinet, the files, the tabs, the, the folders continue, as I said at the beginning of the talk, to sort of, these are the ways in which we're asked to think about our encounters with information. So that, to me, is what the the way the filing cabinet kind of stands out, and I think it is important. I mean, the filing cabinet is arguably more important if we think about storage and the value of storage because that's where information is stored right like the filing cabinet becomes absolute absolutely critical infrastructure to allow like the you know, to allow the modern world to function right like it's critical to governance it's critical to corporations right because that's how information is stored and retrieved and um, you know if if there was another technology that did that then I probably would have written about that in, in, in one sense, but the filing cabinet did. And of course, like all infrastructure, it's kind of ignored, right? It's just this thing in the corner and the labor associated with it. Is a thing. Yeah, the skyscraper stuff 
that strikes me so fascinating. Oh, yeah. Skyscraper yeah. is like a filing cabinet that files the people, and you need the, you yeah. know, the, that, you know, you need the elevators mm -hmm. to get people to the 20th floor so they can work, so they can go in their slot or do yeah. folder, whatever, be in their spot after. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's what I meant. Like the first chapter of the book after the introduction is called Verticality, and it explores all those connections, right? And in fact, to the point that I sort of argue that when capitalism takes on its 20th century form, it has a vertical bias. Right. Um, you know, and, and I think we can see that in all the things that you, that you mentioned, like the skyscraper here that I put up on the screen and, and the elevator, um, but also um, thinking about, um, well, the filing cabinet, but also thinking about uh, management hierarchy, right, the vertical ladder, like, you know, verticality, I really do think it has a vertical bias until the network arguably comes in as a whole. Oh. Covering various men, and she moves up in the building. The yeah. camera shows outside the building. It goes up. Yeah. It's it's amazing. I will stop monopolizing. No, 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 it's great. No, yeah, yeah. And then we have some cues. Uh, people queued up in our Q and A as well. I have a question. Hi. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the haptic element of some of your arguments, yeah, sure. right? This idea of touch and sort of storage and touch and how they were related. Mm -hmm. And kind of bringing it to contemporary storage of the cloud and the drive and the sort of ethereality of that, right? Like the mm -hmm. non-existence of a touch, but in fact there are hard drives <laughs> that, right. that, you know, have, contain the data. And I guess I wonder, like, do you see the non-like verticality of contemporary, like, do you see contemporary storage practices, non-haptic ones, or I mean, do you see them as as changing this 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 kind of vertical structure yeah. of capitalism or not? Or um, yeah, I think that um, I always I always have to, you know. Um, begin hesitantly begin these these questions because I you know I am a historian by trade right so like I obviously I think about and I and I come to this through contemporary questions and issues but you know it's not it's not where my head fully goes so yeah part of the thing uh, part of the point I want to talk about here is that when I'm arguing that storage is not neutral in the ways that you've just talked about contemporary storage not being neutral it speaks to you know like different values or different ways in which storage has been defined right so the notion of verticality I think is absolutely central to how storage is understood within the context of capitalism right in the early 20th century I think as capitalism changes and I sort of you know just throughout when I was talking to the responding to Heather's points you know saying that like in the middle of the 20th century or the second half of the 20th century the network we can argue becomes important and then you can think about a horizontal bias you know and then you know and then you know the cloud you know and then we can think about concepts of the cloud and that less tangible understanding um, of storage is, is another further development and issue I think it really affects how we think about storage right if because the things aren't piling up there you know you don't turn around and have an entire wall of cds or an entire wall of records right and so so that lack of um like that the the lessening of that haptic dimension to the individual specific item of storage i think completely alters how we think about storage right it makes storage live in a way that the filing cabinet you know is not at all but i think you you noted this too but there's still we can't deny the haptic dimension that is still there, you know, in terms of how we, how we access things. But yeah, so, so definitely, I mean, I think these are issues and, and part of what I always, you know, every 
in a historian's hope, right, is that people who are much more invested in contemporary issues can take some of the concepts that history has allowed us as historians to think about and, you know, and apply them, you know, and, and really develop them. Um, but yeah, I could go on with that. And I may, if there are no other hands. Anyone else is our virtual uh, yeah yeah and we have a question that I missed the, the first couple of minutes of yeah. the talks so apparently my people right? <laughs> um, okay. yeah. uh, so you know I was wondering what, was there a specific company behind promoting oh. your, those because you know it's it's connected to my my real question is to what extent that system of the vertical filing, the filing cabinet also translates to other countries. Right. You know, yeah, which has sure. to do, of course, with that capitalistic idea of a company, you know, promoting those, those ideas in terms of efficiency right. and so on. Sure, yeah. So, so, so the, the vertical filing, filing cabinet is an American invention, right? It comes out through the 1890s. There's not really one, there's not, you know, it's, it's, it's very much of its time. So there wasn't really one inventor per se though if you go to wikipedia there's a nice invention story for you and it is actually kind of appealing because they credited the company they credited to is a company called the library bureau which was founded by melville dewey of the dewey decimal system right even though he was no longer part of the company when um they were um when when they were attributed with inventing the filing cabinet it also links it to the library and the card catalog and all those things so you have so the filing cabinet really does take off as an american product and and builds this office equipment company office equipment industry most of the um companies are based either in the midwest or um in upstate new york for for a variety of reasons. By the 1920s, um, the vertical filing cabinet is starting to be exported, right? Um, and it has an impact um, in Europe, but you know, you have lived in Europe, you know that the vertical file there is not the vertical filing cabinet, right? It's the arch binder, right? Um, and that's the arch binder that in some ways Cornelia um, Wiesman in, in her canonical book Files, which is sort of a media archaeology of the legal file, like she talks about vertical files and that, but they're the binders, right? So I have not explored and I'm not going to um, um, play with stereotypes to, you know, to, you know, um, to figure out why it is in, 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 in many countries, the file remains that binder concept versus the draw, but I if that was part of your question, I, I definitely absolutely acknowledge that, that distinction. Yeah. Um, maybe it's the lack of skyscrapers. Right? You know? yes. Was there another question over there? Yeah, hi. Uh, yeah. Um, so I know that like modern filing cabinets have the safety feature where you can't open like multiple drawers at once. Yeah. Did that um, like start when it was first invented or like did that come later? Yeah, that's, that's a great question about sort of security and privacy, right? Which of course is another important key aspect of storage often. So um, what the initial, initial filing cabinets didn't come with locks and this was a concern about security locks came in but it was it was it was just simply a lock that locked all four you know, that locked all four drawers right um and um it's not yeah was it sorry was that what you were asking with that when they you can only pull out one at a time or um, this is also um, when you open multiple drawers, risk toppling. Toppling it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it did not have that mechanism. Sorry, I, I, mis I misunderstood. Yeah, so it had a lock to lock four, um, 
to lock four drawers, but no, it's well into the 20, middle of the 20th century when you, they developed the mechanism to stop them all coming out. And so that is that concern, right, of, of them toppling over, which is part of what those guys doing their, their handstands, right, you know, and, and pull-ups on the, and jumping into the filing cabinet is meant to say, hey, you know, look, this drawing of a man, you know, shows that all these photographs, these people sitting in, show that it can take this weight and it's not, sorry, it's not going to tip over. So was that, did I get to it eventually or was, yeah, 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 yeah. sorry about that. Sorry, I'm with one word, so maybe you can uh, look at the screen. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. So a question in the Q&A from Aguinaldo Nello. As Professor Craig, can you cite one example of partiality uh, that you found? Practicality, partiality? Looking at information, information stored in these types of files. An example of partiality. Yes, sorry, I, I'm a little lost on that question. Could we? Yeah, I can have if you have another word partiality. or an update to that. We can come bias. Back. Bias. I know. Like, is there bias? Ah, uh, so ah, uh, so okay. I'll I'll keep answering your biases. Okay, thank you. Okay, biases that you found in the looking. Okay. Um, Maybe, maybe I kind of spoke too, too loosely in the talk. Maybe this is where this question came from. Um, I think, so yes, I mean, of course, the information within the file, the sort of file cabinets can represent multiple biases, right? Um, the the um, argument about information being objective, right, is that information is something that can exist separate from the context in which it's created so that it can be interpreted very easily, right? So this idea of information as something different from knowledge is information having as having sort of a facticity, right? Like, so it's not data, but it has a facticity. So I was talking, when I was talking about it being objective, I was talking about the conception of information, right? Um, as an entity, as a thing, not the actual, if you like, stuff on the piece of paper. Does, does that make sense? I mean, I don't know if that makes sense. So, so yeah, there's a lot of bias in, in, in the, in the, in, within, the within the files and folders themselves. I'm just gonna keep moving through images up here. Origin of information. Sure. Could you yeah. expand on that? Like, how, where did you go to find that origin of information as a concept? Right. So I'm, I'm I'm drawing pretty heavily on the work of Jeff Numberg for this. Jeffrey Numberg. Um, it's an essay called "Farewell to the Information Age," in a book he co-edited with Paul Duguid, I think, called um, "The Future of the Book." That came out in the early 1990s, right? And it's this beautifully written essay. Um, that is incredibly smart and has shaped a lot of the work in media studies, um, but the work of people looking at the intersection of paper and information. So someone like Lisa Gittleman, um, for example. Um, and so, um, yeah, so, so Nunberg is arguing that, that in this period, um, as I, I think I mentioned very quickly in the talk, in the 19th century, information moves from being a process, right? being informed, being educated, to being a thing, to being something that you can possess. 
and that is that it's something that can exist or that is an entity. And there's a, also a special his, issue of the journal History of Human Sciences, I think, which goes through and talks about the development of in the 19th century um, of the idea of data through the use of, of the way in which the census in Europe and the United States comes to be represented. So again, you've got tables, right, that are all representing information, you know, as something that is discrete, right, that has therefore some kind of presence in the world, right? And it's understood that the idea is that you can look at the stuff at a glance, right? Meaning you, as, um, as uh, John Seeley Brown and, and Paul Duguid put it, like, you know, knowledge needs a knower, right? It needs a subject, it needs a person, but information doesn't have a knower, right? It doesn't have a, per you know, it's understood to be this thing that exists in the world. And so what I find fascinating about the filing cabinet is that through the concept of the file, this kind of sort of abstract understanding of information is something distinct from knowledge that's starting to percolate through society from the middle of the 19th century on. Suddenly, there's a tangible way you can conceive of it, right? Because now you have this loose piece of paper, you know, in a, in a file folder, in a drawer, and you can extract this one piece of paper versus having to get the entire, you know, big bound book and have to look through it and scroll through it. So that it's that idea of the particularity of paper, I think helps underscore this notion of information as a discrete unit. Now I'm pushing it a bit further with the file cabinet, but other people... Um, have made, you know, a, a similar argument in that sense. And I think it's a really attractive and appealing argument. And for me, what I find particularly fascinating is in this period, as I read through the literature, the word information is being used, but so is knowledge and so is data. In the, and it might be like in, instrumental knowledge or structured knowledge or organized knowledge. There's just this struggle. People are fumbling around to try and name something that's new. That's the way I read it, right? And so, and then information becomes the thing, you know, that, that, that is the name for that kind of specificity that isn't numerical, right? That isn't data. So data takes on that in the early 20th century, takes on, on, on that name. And so, you know, like no one in the early 20th century is saying they're living in an information age or an information society. But again, I think, you know, part of the way I locate the book is in what I call <clears throat> the genealogy of the ascendance of modern information, right? So this is a very particular period and an important period in that moment. Before we go to, you know, to, to um, the middle of the 20th century, you know, and information becomes, um, you know, information becomes, why can't I think of anyone's names? You know, the MIT guys, I'm completely blanking. You know, where information becomes something that you... Yes, yes, with these massive huge figures where information becomes something that you can measure and that's another form, a technical form of information, which is also part of the story. But I think this preceding that is an important part of the story, just to be able to think about information as a unit, even if that unit becomes something different because of the work that happens around here. Yeah, hi. I'm wondering if you look at any like other visions of information that could get it with, uh, with the imaginary information that was the file cabinet? I think there were thoughts in other artifacts. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, so the card catalog, right, becomes, is, is, is key to that, right? And, and businesses are using card, like, you know, businesses still use the equivalent of a library card catalog, often to record the, the, um, the ledger, the bound book ledger can become a card ledger, right? I mean, there are many ways in which, you know, the cabinet comes in, um, the card 
catalog cabinet or versions of it come into the office. So that's the, I think that's the other really main sort of competing thing. The punch card, right, is, is the other one, right? But punch cards in this period, they're really not in a lot of businesses compared to the filing cabinet and the card catalog. But yes, those, I mean, those, I think those are two other, if you like, competing ways of, 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 of thinking about this conception of information, but they definitely don't have the sort of um, uptake um, that the filing cabinet does. And then of course, what makes the filing cabinet interesting looking back is the fact that files and tabs, et cetera, are how we still think about information. We don't think about the card, right? You know, like Scrivener might want us to go back and think about, you know, the card, but we don't think about a card or a catalog in that way and the punch card, you know, like whereas we do think about the file, you know, in, in multiple ways, both as the icon on our desktop, but also the directory system, right? Um, and again, Wiesman's book file, it's only, if you, I don't read German well enough to read the German, there's a longer version where I think she expands a little bit more on this, but in English translation, there's just a very short nod to the current moment, but she really traces a history um, through legal records and the registry of the idea of the file in terms of directory nesting structure. Whereas sort of I'm looking via the filing cabinet more as the file as icon on, on the desktop, right? And folder on the desktop, so yeah. Um, could you talk uh, more about the gender as a, uh, uh, or not gender, specifically femininity, female sexuality as a, as a problem? Um, you referenced, um, you know, unwanted advances, yeah. sort of an issue, but also you said they were undiscussed in a way. So there's yeah. the, 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 the problem that a woman naturally brings this sort of threat because she's, she's feminine and irresistible and she brings it to the office and it has to be managed, yeah. but it doesn't seem to be, they're trying, it, it feels like they're trying to downplay that because if you open that up, it becomes too much right. of a threat, too dangerous. And I'm thinking, I'm just wondering how, much there is ambivalence there. But as I immediately started thinking once again about Hollywood films and specifically from the, like the 1920-1933 period before the production code, mm -hmm. where you do have films like Baby Doll that I referenced where the woman who is the secretary who files and answers the phone, whatever, is inherently a, a sexual threat, a sexual danger in the workplace. Right. But then you have quite a few films that are ambivalent and, and really, it has to do with like how you script the film. You need a, the, the sort of bad girl, the ingenue, right? And so the film Skyscraper Souls is like the perfect example of this, right? Starring Warren William, the ultimate cad, mm -hmm. rapist boss figure of these pre-code movies, right? Mm -hmm. Who, you know, you have this, this secretary who's struggling not to be raped. And then you have the old hand who's been through several bosses and she's part of the job, you know, which yeah. is, it's horrific, right? Um, and the film acknowledges it as horrific. Um, there's just this sort of fascinating ambivalence about women mm -hmm. in this corporate workplace that you see in popular culture. Yeah. And I'm just curious how much of that ambivalence really comes through in all the, the interesting sources. Of yeah, so, so, the, so my comments are about um, sort of the, about the harassment, you know, which, you know, the, this image here, right, of this creepy guy just staring at this woman and here, she refusing to make eye contact. This is an ad to make you want to buy a filing cabinet, right? Um, 
like so but a lot but a lot of that stuff draws from secondary sources right so which you may or may not be familiar with um lisa fine wrote a book which looks at and analyzes all of these films and other popular cultural artifacts at the time um sharon um strom is where i took a lot of the comment about um about not discuss like being acknowledged but not discussing the behavior of men um so in the but in the sources that i found so i was looking at vocational sources right so vocational literature and all the how-to office manuals and all this all the literature that was out there to recruit um women into um the office and in that there was no ambivalence right like you know the responsibility was squarely on the shoulders of women to um, behave themselves. And as I said, that quote, like, you know, to check their apparently, you know, natural desire to throw themselves at, you know, at any man. Um, and this was fought through clothes, right? That's what, like, so what clothes were acceptable to be worn in an op worn in the office, right? And that was in that quote about, as well as leaving Tom, Dick and Harry at home, you left all your fancy clothes at home, right? And so that becomes a site where people, um, yeah, a site of struggle over where, where it seems that female workers are trying to express some sense of themselves through their, through their sexuality, right? But, um, but yeah, I didn't, um, so yeah, I did not find um, that, that ambivalence that, um, that you can't, you're right, that is there in, in my, under, you know, in my limited understandings of those films. And that's sort of whole subgenre of the office wife, right? Which, you know, there's in fact one, I think, called the office wife. And then there are, you know, that's a recurring character, right? Where, where you know, she is the threat in the sense, you know, like she is, she's become his wife in the office, right? It's not, you know, it's not my office buddy kind of joking thing, but, you know, today, but, you know, it's my office wife is a threat. Yeah, I mean, and this is, of course, way outside your period, but the apartment from 1960 yeah. is exactly what you're talking yeah, yeah. about, or what we're talking about here with the gender issues of the boss running through this, from secretary to secretary, yeah. and then, you know, the secretary becomes the wife slot, and then yeah. you need a new secretary for that yeah. to be your office wife. And yeah. Yeah. So, and so it's post-code, it's post right? It's uh, 1960, yeah. and you can really sort of drill into this yeah yeah no so there's a lot of dynamic and there, there are some really smart histories of um of essentially the history of you know sexual harassment in the office right in the modern office that have been written coming largely coming out of um lit out of english literature but but really interesting um ways where people have explored this you know and um and like i say to me in terms of that literature this makes a very small contribution by just saying well in this vocational literature we can see this is going on, right? Um, and I think there is some connection to the mode of work um, that women are doing in the office. Um, yeah. So Filing was a magazine published for four years. Um, it, um, it, um, it's published for, it's all on Google. It's all you can, it's, it's got on Google Books um, and it's all been scanned. And um, it ran for four years, and it really was part of an attempt to professionalize filing. So librarianship had just been professionalized. Archivist work was about to be professionalized. And so people wanted filing to be professionalized. And that's what this magazine pushed. They 
There were filing associations founded in major cities, generally in the Northeast, that have monthly meetings. Maybe 100 people would show up. Maybe 20 people would show up. A guest person would go and deliver their talk on, this is how we file in, you know, in the insurance company I work for. You know, this is how we file in this church, right? You know, and they would meet once a month and have a little chat. And, um, you know, and so that's, um, you know, and so that's where that magazine came from. But it's all up there if you want to read. And it just, you know, every, it's a clearinghouse for information about how to file. Um, and uh, sadly, I, th I thought it would play a bigger part in the book, but it's there when I talk about this failed campaign um, to professionalize. Were there you know, special training programs? Because you mentioned that there is a, a, you know, sort of a new profession emerging. You know, yeah. So there. yeah, so there's, um, so there's, uh, so it fails, right? But but they are trying to teach filing, right? And so the the um, the office equipment companies um, create different ways to teach filing. So this is from Lowell High School, just up the road in 1923, and they're using library bureau equipment. And what the library bureau did, which was really radical, right, is that they reduced, right, letters down to these small sizes, right? So you would then file them in these boxes because the problem was it was really hard to teach filing because filing cabinets took up so much space and you'd have to line up to take your turn to file the letter, right? And so they would, the um, office equipment companies constructed this, these um, courses, right, that could run from 24 classes up to 72 or 96 class, one-hour classes in filing. Now, I didn't find any school or even any private school that took up 96 lessons, but they would incorporate the lessons into, um, into the commercial education courses that girls were being channeled into because this is also a period like in the beginning of the 20th century I think it's five percent of American teenagers go to high school so there's this concerted effort to get kids into high school and so this is where vocational education emerges as as something that's taught in high schools so filing comes in as in as part of that right and this is also i found just as an aside complaints from english professors and so forth that they were being forced to teach technical writing and all the stuff that we maybe think of as a late nine late 20th century early 21st century problem was a consequence of the success of bringing in vocational um, education so by the 1930s pushed along, no doubt, by the depression, about like 70% 70, 70 of teenagers are in high school. Like, uh, so, yeah. I guess this, uh, I'm correct in recalling that this is the same moment that home economics as a yep. field is yep. invented, right? Well, home economics is a little earlier, but again, it takes off, right? It takes off. But it's that same thing about how can we keep people in high school? Like we want them in high school. And of course, what happens is the business community, shockingly, takes over the conversation and pushes it to a lot of commercial education, but women do filing and typing and boy, sorry, girls do women filing and typing and boys do accounting and management, you know, proto management courses and things like this. Right. So yeah, these are again, is a, is a, is a manual for teachers. Right. Um, and the bottom, what, these are the letters. And the thing is the letters can be filed in different ways, depending if it's subject filing, geographic filing, um, alphabetical name filing, right? Um, and so it's again, teaching the kids to very quickly look, they're taught to read very quickly, right? They call it like the dictionary or the um, direct telephone directory method where you just look for the first three letters of the last name to know where it's gonna go, right? You don't have to read the whole thing. Again, you don't need to know. Right, you're, you are, you, it's this form of information labor. Ah, I could go on for hours. <laughs> um, 
um, the, the ways that we find resonance with contemporary issues and the way things have bounced back and forth. And, yeah. you know, I'm thinking about big data and our sense right. that now we have too much data. We didn't used to have too much data, but now we have too much data. And the, the, the premise- Big paper, big paper. Big paper. It's there a big paper. <laughs> right, yeah, the yeah. premise is like, there's just too much, I mean, there's too much information. Oh, yeah. If you need to file 40 files in 60 seconds or whatever, yeah. or one minute, whatever it is, it's because there's just, an amount of information. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Like it, it's a it's a moment of information overload, right? Um, you know, and that's what I like about that Google comic strip, like these different modes of information overload. But I feel this is a really you can call this information overload because it's understood it's what's being overloaded is understood as information, not paper, right? It's called that. But if people talk about information overload prior to that, they may be talking an like it's overwhelming amount of knowledge, but it's literally not called information by the contemporary actors, right? And so I think this is a real important example, uh, you know, of an early form, you're completely right, of information overload. And the filing cabinet seeks to manage that, you know, and, you know, and again, it comes up with this conception, what the filing cabinet doesn't, but what emerges is a conception of information akin to data, like, you know, let's remove it from context. So we can better do something with it. So let's remove it from the context of a bound volume of 19, you know, of the correspondence from the Madrid office of, you know, of the US embassy, you know, where there might be passport stuff in the middle of it, but it's all bound in this big book. But now we can isolate it as these discrete things. We don't need to understand the context of what's going on in Madrid, in the Madrid office to understand this thing about the filing, about the passport but the implication is we did when it was a bound volume type thing i know i kind of lost you there but passport's also great this is interesting so i'm also wondering if you looked at sort of power as it's coded in these in the files themselves or in the, in the systems and i asked that because in i guess the early 20th century was still under like a colonial colonialism was everywhere right, right? so i and, and we talk about information overload, but there's also information access as it's opened up to a yeah. lot more people. And, and then also there's layers of bias and algorithms. I mean, we could go yeah, back yeah. and forth so much about it. So I'm wondering, like, are there are there ways that the cabinet functioned as an exclusive space just to hold information only accessible to specific people? Right. And are there, you know what I mean, are there ways we can understand that exclusivity yeah. differently? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I, I was kind of surprised by that because I, you know, I have, for another set of reasons, I have a lot of interest um, in the way in which the archive has been thought about, particularly by historians of the British Empire. Right, you know, um, and and you know, and other people like thinking of Anne and Laura Stoller and so forth. But particularly within the British Empire, and and you know, through the nineteenth century, again, it's towards the end of the nineteenth century that it. There's a more systematic way to organize the records of the British Empire because prior to that, they're literally just piles of paper dumped somewhere as these reports that these poor colonial officials have spent forever crafting just get arrive in London and just get put in a pile, right? Um, so I was expecting and, and maybe thinking that I would find something, you know, something connected to that, to the very question you're asking. But in the literature that I was looking at, I didn't find it. Now, you know, I'm not writing a history of classification i am writing a history of storage so so that negates part of what you said but still where you ended up the final point of your question i think is really important and so you know i found you know the closest i got was just finding you know debates and concerns about security and privacy just sort of in general right um 
within an office, say, right, to a filing cabinet. There was discussions of private filing, you know, the private filing cabinet of a man in his office separate from the larger filing cabinets of, you know, the the, the battery or as they called them, you know, the, the dozens of filing cabinets that occupied the center space, you know, of an office, right? But yeah, surprisingly, and it's not to say it's not there, it just wasn't there in the literature that I that I was looking at. But I think, it, you know, it is, a, it is a really, really important question about like how the filing cabinet as a mode of storage is understood to exclude, right, you know, in terms of the t- like access and type of knowledge, right? Because these women have all this, this is something that isn't, again, you know, I'm looking at the ideal representation of it to make an argument. Um, but, you know, these women, while the idea is set up that they can look, they can move, they have to file really quickly, right? But they do ultimately have access to all this stuff, right? And there is, sadly, it's actually not one of the ones I pulled up here and didn't use, but there's a, um, a great ad that I, I found from the mid-1930s from one company where it's like, she controls your history, right? Um, you know, and so, you know, so there, you know, there's like in, in that kind of playful way, there's a, like a little bit of an acknowledgement of it, but no. I'm rambling on because I like I think it's a great question, but yeah, I can't I can't give you something about other than recognize the the question, the insight. Yeah. Um, did you see any instances of filing cabinets being non-official uh, or subversive or illicit purposes within corporations? Right. I'm curious about how they might have been repurposed by employees. Yeah. And she says this question might be redundant considering what you're currently saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it is kind of, right? Yeah. But again, um, I didn't, you know, it, the part of it is the limitations of the archive, right? So the archive skews to the official literature, mm-hmm. you know, in this sense, right? And so, you know, I, and it's, it's hard, you know, like, I really didn't find like diaries or or journals or, or something where that might be recorded. Or I was also looking at the, you know, I was looking at the archives of such as they were of the companies, the filing equipment companies, like the book would never have been written if I was going to choose, you know, to really take a deep dive into various companies and how file cabinets were used. So that's you know, that, that's where I may have found that, right? But what I didn't find in the how-to literature or the, or the literature in a magazine like Filing or, any, or its successor, The File, um, what, which was more of a pamphlet, was that I didn't find people addressing that as a problem, which doesn't mean, as we, when we were talking about, you know, the harassment of men, sexual harassment, it doesn't mean that it wasn't a problem, but it definitely wasn't a problem that was, that was talked about. Um, but yeah, so w- all that comes in is misfiling, which is understood to be a distraction, right? Like from distraction, not not intentional. There's not an intentional thing, you know. It's a distraction, or it's or it's stupidity, right? Like like a lack of, you know, a sort of yeah, because these are the daughters of immigrants, right? So it's a lot of race. I mean, I focused on gender today, but obviously it goes, you know, it goes hand in hand um, with race, ethnicity, and as I did sort of briefly nod to sexuality. Uh, right, pushing up at 6.30. So I just want to thank Craig Robertson again for joining us. And I'll see uh, you all at our next, uh, well, I'll see you in class, but uh, <laughs> you and our distance folks at our closing week after next. Uh, thank you so much.